In a letter that might have actually been the last one he ever wrote, Paul exhorted Timothy to guard the truth at all costs. His words are emotionally charged and filled with wisdom for the ages. Listen this week as our study in 2 Timothy continues on Truth For Life with Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, weekdays at 9 a.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Hey, this is Chris Brooks. Every day we'll be equipping you to live, share, and defend your faith on Equip with Chris Brooks weekdays, 2 to 3 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Listen now to the inspirational and motivational program, Arise and Shine, with your host, Keith Nelson. We greet you on this beautiful Lord's Day in the mighty, matchless, and magnificent name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, our Christ and King. And once again, we are so thankful that you've taken out of your busy day, your busy Sunday afternoon, a beautiful outside, and you could be doing a lot of things, but you decided to spend this time with us as we walk through the gospel according to St. Matthew's. And we rejoice and we're exceedingly glad uh, we are in the 17th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, and we're looking at, in the midst of examining what is called uh, the Mount of Transfiguration or the Transfiguration of Jesus Christ uh, in that 17th chapter uh, of Matthew's Gospel. We've made it down, uh, started into it on last Sunday, and we've made it to the fourth verse. Uh, let me read the fourth verse for you, and if, just a few of the verses thereafter. And it says, Then Jesus, excuse me, then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three booths, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And remember we talked about uh, on last Sunday as we got into this, Jesus took his disciples up into a high mountain. Uh, most uh, common thought and uh, theological position is that was Mount Hermon, uh, closest mountain to Caesarea Philippi. And there Jesus transfigured himself. That word transfigure is actually metamorphotai. Uh, metamorphosis is what we get is is to change form and and Jesus changed form uh, and showed his true glory of his revelation the power of his majesty the radiance uh, that uh, came forth in his face uh, his divine glory as it shone throughout his human form and 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 through that uh, Jesus uh, presented himself in his true state as being uh, the light of the world, being the only begotten son of the father of light, First uh, John, the first chapter and the fourth verse, uh, and being uh, the gospel of John saying that Christ is the light of the world, showing himself in, in his true divinity and his true power, the disciples were filled with wonder, and they began to be afraid. Uh, and I don't know about you, but to be uh, at that time in that level of, of thought, and, and maybe even today, 
to have Christ appear before you in that type of majesty and glory. Uh, I was once asked, uh, how did John experience seeing Jesus Christ uh, while he was on the Isle of Patmos? And my response was that wasn't the first time that he saw Christ in his glory. Uh, the first time he saw Christ in his glory was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and, and so when G Jesus appeared before John uh, on Patmos Island, uh, this was now John knowing that uh, Jesus, the second time that he's seeing him in his glory. Uh, one of the things that uh, we uh, are sharing and looking at is the companion passages too. Um, because this uh, pericope, this body of thought, this knowledge that is being presented by Matthew is also written on and by Mark in Mark, the ninth chapter, the second through the 13th verse, and in Luke, the ninth chapter, the 28th through the 36th verse. And here, one of the things that Luke adds in that is not in any of the other Gospels is that Luke states that Jesus transfigured himself when the disciples had fell off to sleep. So they kind of dozed off to sleep, and when they woke up, when they were awakened from their sleep, that's when they saw Jesus in his transfigured state. So this must have been quite a surprise to them to open up their eyes and see the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ while he is you know, there hovering in the air and Moses and Elijah is there with him and they are talking with him. Uh, we went over the, the quick meaning of the representation of what uh, it kind of meant, uh, the symbolism that came from this this union of Jesus in the center and Moses on one side and Elijah on the other and the disciples being there uh, there on the top of this mountain. And we pointed out the fact that most theologians believe that from a symbolic standpoint, this imagery as we see it is a representation of the future and it's a representation of Christ's coming kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of heaven or the time where Christ will reign on earth. And Moses represents the redeemed that will be in the kingdom of heaven that has passed through death into that kingdom. Uh, and we looked at that kind of in Matthew, the 13th chapter in the 43rd verse. Uh, quickly, Elijah represents the redeemed who will have and who will go into the kingdom and they're going through the kingdom through metamorphosis. Uh, and then, of course, that is represented by 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter and the 13th verse. And then the unglorified disciples or those individuals who are still in earthly bodies uh, will represent Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, and the people that will go into the kingdom of heaven uh, in the flesh, and that particular time is represented by uh, Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, uh, the 21st through the 22nd verse. And then, of course, Christ in his glory, Christ in his majesty, Christ in his dominion, Christ as king of kings and lords of lords, sitting on the throne of David during the time of the kingdom of heaven, 
uh, as we would call it, the millennium, and that can be found in Revelations, the 19th chapter. And then all of this will take place literally and physically on the earth. And that's represented, of course, in Ezekiel 37 chapter through the 39th chapter, which begins to outline and describes the 1,000 years of what we would call the millennium of uh, peace on earth when Christ shall reign and sit on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And so all of this was fulfillment or, or a representation of a prophecies that had been made uh, and that now was starting to be able to come to pass. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the king has showed himself in his power and in his glory. Of course, being overtaken by the moment, as we begin to see in that fourth verse, Peter suggests that they would erect three booths. Uh, You see in the fourth verse, one booth for Moses, uh, one booth for Elijah, and one booth uh, for Jesus the Christ. And in that scenario, in that focus and thought, uh, you begin to see probably the fulfillment of the understanding that Peter had in relationship to what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. Uh, You remember the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast that was passed down by God to Moses, to the people, that they would celebrate uh, in booths when they become to the central focus or central location. It happened uh, late in the year between September, October time frame uh, on that Jewish calendar. And it was during the Feast of Tabernacle or what have come to be known as the Feast of Booths where Israel would dwell in tents or in booths, that temporary location, temporary booths that they would make uh, to where they would uh, be able to come closer to God. And that Feast of Tabernacles, of course, included within it the Day of Atonement where the high priest would go in once a year to be able to share the blood to cover the sins of the nation of Israel uh, and then other sacrifices that would take place at that particular time as well. And so you have here this representation that Peter's saying, okay, because we're now close to you, we're here, uh, let us just build these temporary shelters the ship of temporary locations, and we'll just stay here and worship you. The problem was he included Moses and Elijah along with the worship of Christ. And it's all right to worship Christ, but no one is equal with Jesus. Moses and all of the great work that he did was put to sleep on Mount Nebo, He was not equal to Christ. And Elijah being raptured uh, and taken in a whirlwind up to heaven uh, is still not equal to Christ. Uh, And so there is a moment where the theological presentation of Peter kind of airs in the fact that he makes Moses and Elijah equal and will build three booths when in reality 
Christ is the only King of King, and He is the only Lord of Lords. And, and, and so, that Feast of Tabernacle is a celebration that looks back on the forty years of wandering in the wilderness. And how God kept the children of Israel. He kept them. The scripture says that in that 40 years, their shoes never worn out. uh, Their clothes never worn out. And he fed them each and every day with bread, what was called manna from heaven. And at the same time, he fed them every day uh, in relationship to providing water and providing uh, from time to time also meat to be able to eat. Mostly it was pheasant, but he provided meat for them to eat. And and this is now the example of a God that is watching over his children and providing for his children, even in the time where, and if you remember about the wandering in the wilderness, they were in the midst of disobedience most of the time, and yet God provided for them each and every day. Uh, But see, the Feast of Tabernacle also looked forward. It looks back to the 40 years wandering, but it looked forward to Israel one-on-one enjoyment of their God, their Father. Uh, It is a one-on-one representation of their relationship in the future and the blessings that they will receive when they are gathered together in the promised land for the thousand years grace and mercy. And and, and so when you begin to examine Jesus uh, and his transfiguration, he's pulling together a lot of the prophecies and a lot of the signs that have been given throughout the ages to many of the prophets uh, and then in some of his own teaching of his death and resurrection as well. And so the scripture uh, goes on to state that when Moses and Elijah appeared, uh, that Luke also brings out a additional point in Luke, the ninth chapter, in the 31st verse, that Moses and Elijah was talking with Jesus about his coming death. They had knowledge, uh, they had uh, insight into the fact that Christ had come not just to show us the Father in the flesh. He did come to do that, but he also came to die for the children of God, both Israel and all of those children who would confess upon his name. And he come to die, and this is what Moses and Elijah was talking to Christ about when at that moment a bright cloud came and covered Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And all three disciples, the disciples or apostles that are writing on this issue, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all speak to the fact that when the bright cloud covered Jesus and Moses and Elijah, a voice came out of that cloud and spoke these words, This is my son and whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, depending upon whether you're reading it from Matthew or Mark or Luke, the words would vary a little bit. Matthew said the voice that came out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Uh, The words differ slightly, but the context and the focus is the same. It is the father 
given certification over the ministry of Jesus Christ. The voice of authentication coming from the Father on his son. And what son wouldn't be overjoyed to hear the words of encouragement from their father? To be able to listen and hear someone say, your life has been a life of purpose and a life of meaning. Your life and your work has been a work that has brought glory and grandeur to your name. The things that you have done have represented me well, and I am pleased with what you have done. This is not the first time that God gave his voice of authentication to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Remember back in Matthew, the third chapter, the 13th through the 17th verse, at Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, that while he was coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ like a, in the a form of a dove and in a fashion or in the imagery of a dove, the symbolism of a dove. Uh, and then there's a voice that came down from heaven that said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, 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 and so that was the first authentication of Jesus' ministry. The second authentication of Jesus' ministry is found here in Matthew 17 and 5. Uh, at and doing Jesus Christ's transfiguration. And then the third authentication of Jesus' ministry will be found in John, the 12th chapter and the 28th verse. And it was at that time, right at the end of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem and before his crucifixion, remember John writes, and this is the only time uh, and the only person that writes about this incident. John writes, when Greeks came to see Jesus, Greeks are, uh, are part of the excellentia of knowledge and wisdom and education. Greeks, those who were steeped in philosophy, Greeks, those who were steeped in psychology and all of these uh, mind sciences, they came to see Jesus, and remember, they went and made the statement, we would see Jesus. And when you have Gentiles coming to see Jesus, you know that the power of drawing that Christ had was beginning to come to its flourishing throughout the world. And it is at that time when the Greeks asked to see Jesus that also Christ received his third authentication, and that authentication came from, again, a voice from heaven uh, when Jesus made it the statement, glorify me, Father. And the Father responded and saying, I have glorified you, and I will glorify you again. And so there's three places throughout the gospel records uh, that God authenticates the ministry of his son and the presence of his son, Jesus, the Meshua, Jesus, the Christos, Jesus, the Christ. And of course, three is the number of completion. And so when you have three in Matthew, the third chapter, Matthew, the seventh chapter, and John, the 12th chapter, John God has put a complete authentication on the work and life and ministry of his son here on earth. 
when the voice came, and you can see it uh, when Jesus spoke these things in that sixth verse, the disciples, when they heard it, they fell on their face. And again, they were afraid. They were afraid when Jesus first transfigured himself. And now this awesome voice being booming from the cloud. Also, they are afraid again at this time. And why they were prostrated on the ground and they had fell on their face with fear. The scripture says Jesus walked up and touched them. And when they looked up, there was no one there but Jesus. The cloud had went away. The voice had stopped. Moses and Elijah had disappeared. And there was no one else that they saw except Jesus and Jesus alone. And so uh, later on in his epistle, his second epistle, Peter writes about this incident. And he writes it in Second Peter, the first chapter, the 16th through the 18th verse. And he talks about the glory of God that he had seen, the great revelation of Jesus Christ that he had behold. And whoa, what increase in faith this must have brought to the disciples to be able to see Christ in his true state, in his glorified position, in his state of power and majesty. But yet in all of this, this wasn't enough to solidify their faith to where they would not later on in the Garden of Gethsemane run and abandon Jesus uh, to those who were coming to arrest and to take him to trial for blasphemy. And, and, and so as all of this is transpiring, we can look at the scripture as they had lifted up their heads in the eighth verse, their eyes, they saw no man. Ninth verse, and as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man is raised again from the dead. This now becomes the second time Jesus is projecting through a prophecy his death and resurrection. Remember, he stated it before, six days before they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Now Jesus is re initiating that comment and focus and teaching in the disciples and saying, I will die. I will go to Jerusalem and die. And don't tell anyone about what you have seen here today until after I have been risen from the grave. And then you can share what you have seen, this vision of power and majesty, this vision of great reward and confidence and so Jesus asked his disciples not to share with anyone what had happened on Mount Hermon and the transfiguration the metamorphosis that had come unto him but the disciples had a question they didn't question why they shouldn't tell anyone their question was trying to get understanding of what they had saw. And so in the 10th verse, and it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then sayest the scribes that Elijah must first come? Why is it the teachings 
Why is it the teachings from uh, the book of Malachi and, and teachings from many of the place that the that Elijah must come first? And so Jesus answered and said, Elijah must come first truly to restore all things. The teachings are not false. The teachings are true. What Malachi wrote in Malachi, the fourth chapter and the fifth verse is true. Elijah must come first to restore all things before Christ come permanently. And so he's referring here to his second coming. And when Christ come in his second coming, the spirit of Elijah, we believe, will also be a forerunner of Christ in his second coming. And that's why many theologians believe that one of the two witnesses will be Elijah uh, at the forerunning of Jesus Christ's second coming uh, out of Revelations, that 16th chapter. But then Jesus goes on and said, but Elijah has already came in the presence of John the Baptist. And you rejected him. The people rejected him. They rejected his ministry. They rejected his teaching. They rejected his focus. And, and so if you look in Luke, the first chapter in the 17th verse, John would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's what was basically told his father about the birth of his son, John the Baptist that this would be a fulfillment of the prophecy that John would go before the coming king, the Lord, in the power and the authority of Elijah. And then later on, John would have the fulfillment and the prediction of Elijah in the nation of Israel that will help them to believe and come to a deeper understanding and knowledge of God and Jesus as being King of King and Lord of Lord. And we saw that in Matthew, the 11th chapter and the 14th verse. And so because of all of this, because they rejected both Elijah and the Christ, they rejected both John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ, the Messiah must come again. And that's why he must die. That's why he must be buried for three days and three nights. That's why he must be resurrected and Jesus makes it plain. Uh, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. This was the plan from the beginning and I will pick it up again. Ladies and gentlemen, our time is out. As always, may God bless you and may God keep you. May God shine his face upon you and lift his countenance upon you. May the Lord give you peace. God bless you today. Thanks for listening to Arise and Shine with your host, Keith Nelson. Arise and Shine is sponsored by Beulah International Ministries. The ministry's goal is for the Lord to be your primary source of joy for your spiritual, physical, and emotional health, and for you to enjoy an intimate relationship with God. Please support this ministry with a love offering to Beulah International Ministries, P.O. Box 316, Farmington Hills, Michigan, 48332. You may also call 248-470-7252 or visit their website at beulahinternational.org. 
Churchstaffing.com has hundreds of free job listings for pastors, secretaries, maintenance, and IT. Get a job you truly care about. Go to churchstaffing.com. Churchstaffing.com. Hi, this is Chris Brooks, campus dean of Moody Theological Seminary, Michigan campus. And I want you to take a moment to meet some of the world-class professors that make Moody, Michigan a special place to learn and grow. My name is Eric Moore. I am a professor here at Moody Theological Seminary. I am the department chair for pastoral ministry. One of the great things about myself and other professors here at the seminary is that uh, not only do we teach, but we also are involved in ministry, such as myself. I am a pastor of Tree of Life Bible Fellowship in uh, Royal Oak, Michigan. Uh, one of the great things about Moody Theological Seminary is the fact that we are dedicated and committed to teaching the Word of God. And as a result of that, uh, we also uh, prepare it in such a way that the students here will not only learn it and apply it to their own lives, but also be able to teach it, preach it, and apply it to those who are under their care. We'd love to have you be a part of the Moody, Michigan family. Why don't you contact us by visiting moody.edu. That's moody.edu. 